Welcome to the CEC report for the 4th of May 2018. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Elisa. And on today's show we have Banking Royal Commission spreads shock waves globally and not another regime change war. So firstly, Banking Royal Commission spreads shock waves globally. Now, of course, every day there's more dirty laundry pumped out of the Royal Commission, Craig. Yep. And, you know, the scandals just get worse as they go along. The reactions of the regulators and the bankers involved get more and more pathetic, unfortunately. However, the effect and the impact of what's coming out cannot be smoothed over. Absolutely, Lisa. Look, we've been campaigning for Glass-Steagall separation, which we'll say more about in the program. Mm. And what this is doing is creating a climate, like it did back in 1933 with the original Glass-Steagall legislation that was passed by President Roosevelt, to actually show people the banks are so corrupt, they're so criminally orientated, that unless there's strong legislation coming out to deal with them, yeah. then the system will collapse, which is what we know is going to happen. Now, that's what we're looking... This is the same framework, like what happened in yeah. 1933 before the, the original... Commission. The Procura Commission. Mm. before the first lot of Glass-Steagall legislation came out, which of course the legislation is there to separate out the boring banking, the normal commercial banking from all the investment and merchant banking, mm -hmm. Lisa. So, I mean, this is, this is good because yeah. it's pushing, and we've noticed it a lot, it's pushing the political people, the politicians and so forth who are thinking, into having to act. Yeah. Now, they would, you would, 12 months ago, you know, when Malcolm Turnbull was talking about the fact, oh, we don't need a Royal Commission, we've got it all on hand, we've seen a 180-degree flip of the entire political geometry that many, many uh, ordinary uh, parliamentarians, politicians are saying, look, we've got to deal with this. There's such a voter backlash out there, we can't just be seen to be doing nothing. Mm. And it keeps going on and on. Now it's, now it's going globally. Mm. Global. Yeah, and we'll give a few examples of that. And it was always our intention to, um, if we could get real traction for Glass-Steagall here in Australia uh, because we know it's had a lot of support in the US and UK but it's kind of stalled out that this would become, this would create a momentum from Australia across the world and it's happening. So I want to read a little bit from an article in the London Times. This is from the 2nd of May 2018 and it's headlined, UK lenders should scent danger from Australian banking's dirty secrets. Uh, so the article goes through the housing bubble being here on the verge of collapse, akin to pre-global financial crash. goes through the Royal Commission and some of the various crimes it's revealing, uh, the facts that heads have rolled and more will roll from major banks, uh, and the warning of the UBS analyst Jonathan Mott last week, where he talked about 70% of Westpac loans being dodgy, which wiped out $9 billion from the value of the big four banks. So that sets the scene for what I'm about to read. So on the Royal Commission, the article says, The affair has sent shockwaves as far as Britain, where Australia has been hailed for coming through the financial crisis relatively unscathed, and where its bankers and regulators were seen as holding the secret to doing business profitably but sensibly. Now Australia's banks are having a tougher time and they have lost some of the dominant hold they used to have over politicians, opening the door to the Royal Commission. Rather than Britain looking to the other side of the world for lessons, the trend has reversed. Australia is following British MPs and regulators who investigated past behaviour for evidence of criminal activity and looked for ways to prevent more taxpayer bailouts. 
That led to banking reforms and to a new crackdown on wrongdoing, stretching from LIBOR rigging to missold payment protection insurance. And then they conclude with this. In Australia, it is possible that the Commission will take things one step further by demanding a breakup of the country's big banks in an attempt to enforce better behaviour and improve competition. That would be something for the UK's large lenders to worry about because even though the reputation of Australia's financial system has been tarnished, it is a precedent that could capture the imagination of banking critics the world over. It's already doing that. <laughs> exactly. So this is actually perfect because um, the fear here is very real mm. that if there is action um, forced upon Australia and forced upon politicians because they are getting hounded, as we know they are, by their constituencies, and that's growing by the day because more and more people are being affected uh, by the financial situation and, of course, anything could trigger a blowout of the housing bubble, um, which will affect and impact people that thought they were safe, actually. And yeah. that will cause even res further resounding changes on our political system. Well, more and more people are waking up to the solutions, Elisa. I mean, we had a major campaign to stop APRA getting the powers to bail in people's deposits. Now, APRA says, oh, then we don't have that power. But we know, and we've reported on this show, that uh, there was a big fight in the parliament behind the scenes to stop uh, legislation being put into place to exclude people's deposits from being bailed in by the regulator APRA. Now, bail-in means where the uh, government can seize, literally, people's deposits or allow the banks to seize their deposits in order to make them solvent. It happened in 2013 mm. in, uh, in Cyprus. Now, we've been calling for Glass-Steagall in this country to stop that, to, to not even have to deal with that. We have a major campaign right now of... Of, of the legislation that we've written to get that to MPs all over the place and people can call in for mm. copies of this legislation. Now, we've been doing this since 2013, Elisa. We've been on a five-year campaign for Glass-Steagall, opposing bail-in, and with our APRA campaign of late last year, we've created a climate within inside the Australian population that there is not only a solution to this problem, but people should and, and have been empowered to stand up and do something about it and people should join this campaign. Yeah. And there's been, the impact has extended to New Zealand as well of this Royal Commission uh, shockwave. Um, First Union, which is the finance sector workers union in New Zealand, has called on the government to convene a full Royal Commission mirroring developments in Australia. Stephen Parry, who's the national finance sector organiser, said the Australian Banking Royal Commission has seen concerning revelations come to light about the culture and practices of the big four Australian banks, which are the parent companies of ANZ, ASB, BNZ and Westpac in New Zealand. A similar inquiry in New Zealand is necessary for the public to be assured that our banks are not engaging in the same behaviour as their Australian parents. <laughs> and he goes on to talk in depth about uh, how finance workers there are under huge pressure to make sales that aren't always in there, the interests of the consumer, the purchaser, as they have been in Australia. And I'll add also that in the US, uh, coverage is starting to grow. There was one headline in the Washington Post, inquiry reveals seamy banking practices in Australia, like charging dead people for financial advice. True, unfortunately. Uh, and another in the Wall Street Journal on the 1st of May is Australia's housing boom finally coming to an end. So, you know, this really is gaining traction. Mm -hmm. Now, we've got to take a quick break, but after this, we'll come back and talk about uh, more discussion for and against Glass-Steagall here in Australia.
Welcome back to the CEC report where we're talking about the shockwaves created by the Royal Commission. Now before we get more into some of the discussions going on about Glass-Steagall, uh, yesterday Craig we put out a press release about the APRA inquiry. This was an independent inquiry into the Commonwealth Bank which was launched in August last year after the revelations of drug money laundering and so on and so forth. And with such serious charges you'd expect a pretty serious response. Mm. Uh, however, the report concluded that Commonwealth Bank's financial success dulled its senses and it blamed complacency, overconfidence, <laughs> excess complexity and insularity. Oh, it's terrible. Um, so look, from start to finish, um, this exercise was designed to shift blame from the regulator who has uh, oversight over the banks, which is APRA, and to blame it on, you know, the quote-unquote culture of bankers and the banking culture, etc. So we knew from the start it would be a whitewash, as we said in the Australian Alert Service last September, um, as the three-man uh, panel that was set up to investigate it was made up all of bankers. So that included John Laker, who's ex-Reserve Bank, Treasury, IMF. He was the head of APRA at the time um, when most of these indiscretions of the Commonwealth Bank were committed. Uh, then you had Graham Samuel, the former uh, chairman of the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Council, who in the 1980s was a Macquarie Bank executive, notorious for advocating that insider trading should be legal. And Gillian Broadbent is the third, the former Reserve Bank board member and former chief of Bankers Trust, which is a bank that pioneered derivative speculation, which has been one of the main factors driving financial crises. And Craig, I wanted to get your comment because yesterday in the press release we stated that either APRA has not done its job in supervising the banks, in which case banking regulation must be completely overhauled, or APRA should be regarded as responsible for or even complicit in the crimes of the banks and it must be hauled up before the Royal Commission to be held to account. Can I add a third bit in, Elisa? Yeah. APRA is doing exactly what it was set up to do. Mm. And you have to understand APRA is, has a parent organisation, the Prudential Regulatory Authority in Britain. This is part of the cabal of central bankers controlling themselves. So APRA is doing what it's supposed to do, protect the banks mm -hmm. ahead of protecting people. Now, before APRA was set up, there was a mandate by the, uh, uh, the Commonwealth Bank, actually, I think then the Reserve Bank, to protect the depositors. In, in, the, in the Banking Act of 1959, that mm. was, what was, was what has to happen. But then they added this thing called the financial stability of yeah. the system. right? So APRA has the so-called responsibility for the financial stability of the system and, they say, to protect depositors. Mm. But when everything that we've looked at, everything that's being discussed, even the head of, the, of APRA came out in front of parliamentary uh, committee, Wayne Byers, mm and said that they're doing a diligent job of protecting the financial stability of the system. They never refer to the fact that they're also supposed to protect depositors because they're not there to do that. No. So, yes, they're guilty of everything. Yeah. And that's why they have to be looked at in the Royal Commission, because what, yeah. but that's, why, that's why Turnbull did not want them to have a look at the APRA. Yeah, that was not in the terms of reference. Not in the terms of reference, because what would come out would shock people that, that they don't mm. exist to protect depositors. Yep. But the Commission is pushing in that direction and what we're hoping is that he would not only ask for an extension by the t of the time frame but also of the terms of reference because this is the nub of the problem. Now it's interesting to add that um, Graham Samuel, one of these three that was behind this report, has just come out leading the pushback against the calls for breaking up the banks. Um, 
So on the, in the um, 24th April Sydney Morning Herald, he blasted the quote-unquote self-anointed experts who are calling to break up the banks. He said, I'm just bewildered, I really am bewildered at people jumping to conclusions barely three weeks into a really important inquiry. And he added that some of these conclusions were of enormous consequence to the financial system. So he was clearly referring to breaking up the banks and separating deposit-taking uh, functions away from speculation, as we've been leading the charge on. Now, one of the self-anointed experts that he was referring to, though, was his predecessor at the ACCC, Professor Alan Fells, who's been leading the charge to end vertical integration, which is the major aspect of breaking up the banks. Another of those experts was Bernie Fraser, the former Reserve Bank Governor, and he told the 26 April Sydney Morning Herald uh, that he supported moves to end vertical integration. He said, I think there's such momentum now that changes are going to be made. And I also wanted to quote from an uh, economics professor at the University of Sydney, Dick Bryan, because he had an interesting insight, actually. He said, so Australia's regulatory framework is vigilant in ensuring that households don't create stability problems for the financial system. But no regulator has a mandate to ensure that the financial system doesn't create stability problems for households. And, of course, the answer to that really, again, is Glass-Steagall. Yeah, look, Elisa, this, the, when we talk about Glass-Steagall, what we're talking about is protecting ordinary Australians against the predatory practices of the banking system that we've witnessed for the last 30 years. Glass-Steagall well, is, is, was the name of a bill or, you know, a process back in 1933 where Franklin Roosevelt had to deal with exactly the same predatory practices of the banking system back then. So he, they, they decided to set up legislation which separated out the normal banking, the commercial banking, the boring banking from every other aspect of banking and protected. And they set up the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation to do that as well. So you had for 60 years, you had a stable system until it started to be taken down in 1999 by Bill Clinton and, and others that, uh, that, that campaigned to get rid of it. Now, Elise, I want to uh, just mention that we've now released a new pamphlet. It's a 100-page document that's available from the CEC. It's called The Next Financial Crash is Certain, End the Bank of England, Bank of International Settlements and Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority Bankers' Dictatorship. That's what we're talking about here, Elisa, mm -hmm. in terms of these problems. Yep. Now, we're also calling, now it's time for Glass-Steagall Banking Separation and a National Bank. Now, this 100-page document's available from the CEC and it sets up and goes through what the solutions are first and foremost, how Australia had a national banking system through the Commonwealth Bank, where in that national bank, the Commonwealth Bank actually controlled the private banks, and we're calling for to go back to such a system. We go through in detail the criminality of the Australian banks and of the international financial system, and we detail our legislation for Glass-Steagall, mm. for an Australian Glass-Steagall equivalent. It's a very detailed uh, uh, manual, yeah. we call it a banking manual, and you know it's taken seven months to produce. But that's available from the CEC now, yeah. and it gives people a real background into what this fight is all about. Mm. Yeah, and just a reminder that Federal MP Bob Catter has agreed to table legislation, this legislation that we've written for Glass-Steagall in the Parliament very soon, as soon as possible, so we need everybody to ring their Member of Parliament and ask where they stand on this. Will you second this bill? Will you vote for this bill and demand it? So we'll take a quick break and after this we'll come back to the drive for a new regime change war.
welcome back to the CEC report. Now we're discussing not another regime change war. So I, <laughs> um, you know, as if we haven't had enough and already we've got the good progress happening with North and South Korea. So it's the last thing that we need. Um, so on the 27th of April, there was a meeting between South Korean leader Moon Jae-in and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. And this was the first time that the North Korean leader had come into South Korean territory since the armistice in 1953. Um, of course, the war never formally ended, but with the declaration that was signed at this meeting on the 27th, um, this can lead to the formal ending of the war. They signed a call for peace and for joint development across the peninsula and moves towards uh, reunification. And also, importantly, a phased disarmament with the ultimate goal being nuclear uh, denuclearisation. Now, since that meeting, Kim Jong-un has stated that he will begin to dismantle this month uh, the missile launch sites and will allow media and scientific experts to witness that. Uh, there are meetings taking place now with Chinese leaders. Of course, Kim will have the long-awaited meeting with President Trump sometime this month, likely. Uh, he's also stated he wants to restore relations with Japan, which is another good sign. Now, there's many potholes in the road and you can read more detail about that in this week's Australian Alert Service but this could come off. China and Russia are the key players actually because they have both offered uh, what the North Koreans really need which is assistance with economic development particularly with energy. Um, <clears throat> I know everyone's going on <clears throat> about Trump's key role but really the most important thing that Trump did was not his harsh words and holding the line but was a year ago when he said that he'd be willing to meet with Kim Jong-un, mm. that he'd be willing to sit down. And he said, you know, he has a hard job for a young person. He showed an actual human quality there. So I think that's the key thing that's paved the way along with what China and Russia has, have done. So this bodes very well for peace. And therefore, right on cue, you had the intervention of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has revealed supposedly new evidence of Iran's non-compliance with the nuclear deal that it made with the UN Security Council members and the Euro European Union in 2015. So we're just going to show a bit of a clip with some highlights of his, uh, what I would call a magic show that he did on national television. This was on the 2nd of May. Iran lied. Big time. After signing the nuclear deal in 2015, Iran And here's what we got. 55,000 pages, another 55,000 files on 183 CDs. We're going to show you Well, Lisa, you said it was a magic show. Where's the rabbits? Yeah, no, no, that's what you were waiting for, really. Um, yep. Now, Craig, experts have actually said that there's nothing new here, including the International Atomic Energy Agency. They've, you know, looked at all this and they're sticking to their guns that, you know, that what they've said is right, the agreement is valid. But, of course, this is happening right before Trump has to decide whether he'll stay in uh, the nuclear agreement, the um, Joint Comprehensive Plan for Action, JCPOA, and continue to waive sanctions against Iran. That decision comes on the 12th of May. So it's clear that this intervention is about stopping the US attempting to work for peace, and that inevitably involves working with China and Russia, as we've seen yeah. in the case of North Korea. So that's what they're trying to sabotage here. Now, as a precedent, 
Let's look at these wise words from Netanyahu on Iraq. Uh, this was in 2002. If you take out Saddam, Saddam's regime, I guarantee you that it will have enormous positive reverberations on the region. And I think that people sitting right next door in Iran, young people, uh, and many others will say, the time of such regimes, of such despots, is gone. There is a new age, something new is happening. Yeah, Lisa Netanyahu is just, you know, again talking about this doctrine at that time, which was permanent war, permanent revolution. This is what governed the world at that point. So you have these revolutionary regime change type wars, yeah. which destroy countries, as we've seen, yeah. instead of allow allowing the people to decide. And they destroy peace. And we're actually going to show a clip now of US General Wesley Clark, the Supreme Allied Commander of uh, NATO in Europe from 1997 to 2000. And in this clip, he talks about uh, how in, after 9-11, the plan was for regime change in seven countries in five years. About 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and, and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the Joint Staff who used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, sir, you got to come in. you got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, you We've made the decision we're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq? Why? He said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information collect connecting Saddam to al-Qaeda? He said, no, no. He says, there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just... He said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. Well, he, Alisa, he pretty much lays out the, the plans that have been happening for the last, what, 15, 20 years, and, or 15 years or so, this is what Donald Trump is up against in yeah. the White House. Now, he came to the, to the position as president because the people didn't want to be involved in these wars. Yeah. But he's up against this permanent uh, regime change apparatus inside the, you know, the, the hidden government, you might say, of the United States. And that's what he's been fighting against to stop any sort of collaboration with Russia and, of course, China towards peace. Because these guys want permanent war and permanent revolution. Absolutely. And you see all over the place, like the... Um in Syria, the chemical weapons attack, which is now being disproved that it even happened. Uh, I mean, WikiLeaks released diplomatic cables in 2006 revealing detailed US plans to undermine and destabilise the Syrian government. So these plans are actually being disrupted, and that's why you have Netanyahu coming in calling for all over again a new um, 
new regime change war. But I can tell you one thing, the only regime change people, regime change that people want now is against the City of London and Wall Street and that is called Glass-Steagall because that would take down that entire apparatus. That's right. And Elise, I think people can uh, get a copy of our yeah. Australian Alert Service magazine and read a lot more about this. There's a lot more detail to cover. We've only just skimmed across the surface in the show. Yep. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thank you.